Welcome to the HTLL podcast. We are your co-hosts, Tino Muvuti, Technical Advisor for WASH. And Emily Hirata, Technical Advisor for Health and Nutrition. In our last episode, we discussed how ADRA implements WASH in conflict zones. In today's episode, we will be discussing the same idea, but looking at nutrition in conflict zones instead. With us is Natsai Nembawari, ADRA International's Senior Technical Advisor for Nutrition. She holds a master's degree in public health nutrition from the London School of Health and Tropical Medicine and has been working with ADRA for over seven years. Prior to coming to ADRA, Natai held various roles within Zimbabwe with organizations such as UNICEF, Helen Keller International, and with the government of Zimbabwe's Ministry of Health and Childcare. During her time with ADRA, Natai has supported many nutrition projects, including several projects in zones of active conflict, such as Yemen, and the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is why we've asked her to join us today. We are excited to have her here to share her insights and experience with us. Natsai, welcome to the HTLL podcast. Thank you very much, Tino, and thank you, Amelie, for having me on your podcast today. I look forward to a conversation. Yes, we're excited to have you, Natsai. And so to get us started with some questions for you, the first one we would that we have for you is, could you share with us from your experience, your knowledge, the impact that armed conflict has on general access to food and nutrition services? Right. So when conflict starts, it destroys people's livelihoods. And we know that most of our food comes from the agriculture sector and the economy is also affected because the infrastructure gets destroyed. People now have difficulty accessing food. So food becomes less available. So the food security and definitely the nutrition security is directly impacted. There is also a rise in unemployment, most of the cases because the industries tend to shut down or scale down and there'll be limited production of um, basic goods, including food. So this directly impacts the accessibility of food to households. Uh, Either they have to go longer distances to find the food, which becomes an increased risk because there is conflict. So it becomes a very complex situation and conflict directly impacts uh, food and nutrition security. There's also the psychological impact that leads to stressful situations, sometimes even post-traumatic disorders that impact mothers and their confidence in whether they will be able to feed their children adequately. So these are some of the issues that affect food and nutrition uh, services directly. In most countries, when there is conflict, the governments tend to, particularly in low to middle income countries, the governments tend to have difficulty in sustaining the remunerations and salaries of staff. Hence, we typically find that most of other health services and nutrition services will be impacted because of lack of staff and deterioration in infrastructure and deterioration in 
lack of supplies because the supply chains have been disrupted as well. We also see that the consumption of less preferred foods is an issue. People tend to resort to foods that they really would not traditionally eat, and they also limit their dietary diversity. They tend to eat more starchy foods, which are largely healthier because they just want to meet the basic need. They just want to get the energy to get up the following morning. Diversity is no longer a priority. And they reduce the frequency of food consumption and tend to eat smaller portion, portions of food. So these are some of the effects that we see on the food and nutrition status of populations when conflicts strike. Yeah, those are some really harrowing points to, to think about. It sounds like a really, it's a systematic problem. Um, it's not mm-hmm. just one piece of, of the pie that's impacted, but conflict mm-hmm. impacts so many things that, that influence food and nutrition services. You mentioned the impact on mothers briefly, and I, I want to come to this a little, a little bit more. Um, mothers and children are largely the main focus when it comes to nutrition programs and activities in our industry. Can you tell us how their nutrition is disproportionately impacted in conflict-affected settings? Why is this important for us as practitioners to understand? Well, most of the times, mothers have already been vulnerable because of the gender nuances that we already used to in our development sector. We already know that at large society has marginalized women and children, and they're considered weaker. And I'll put weaker in brackets because this is a, a, a perception. And so when conflict strikes, most of the times the men are participating in the conflicts in one way or, or, or another, or they are required to. I'll give you an example of Ukraine. Um, men of a certain age are required to participate in the conflict. So that leaves the women having to carry the burden of taking care of the rest of the family members, be it children or in-laws or everybody else around them. And other women are left widowed and lots of children get orphaned when this happens. So women struggle then to sustain livelihoods for these families when conflict strikes. And we've also seen that Conflict leads to forced migration and seeking of asylum. So when this happens, they are removing themselves from a place where they are very familiar with and they know where to get their food and how to get around. And they're going to a place which they are very unfamiliar with, yet they still need to eat every day. They still need to sustain themselves. And this becomes very stressful on the women because if they're if they are widowed and if they don't have another source of support and they now have this great burden before them, it's very overwhelming for them. And you find that they they are women who get impacted so much, maybe they become disabled uh, during the conflict. So it means it becomes more complicated for them to get access to food and nutrition services. So they then might rely on children to help them get around and to sustain the entire family. It becomes very complex. So women and children usually suffer from um, different uh, complexities and different situations. 
and in different ways from men when conflict strikes. Women traditionally are caring. And so this task of keeping families together is something they, they feel they should do, even when they see that it's very hard for them to do it. They still do it despite the destroyed infrastructure, despite the destroyed livelihoods, despite lack of shelter and clothing and all other basic necessities. They just tend to want to stand up for their families and cover that gap. And this becomes very stressful for them. So that psychological impact that I mentioned before is still greater for women and children during conflict settings. This is not directly to re related to health and nutrition, but women also suffer sexually transmitted diseases and stigmatization because there have been many cases of rape and sexual assault that happen during conflict. And it affects their health, their confidence in getting by uh, on a daily basis. Yeah, so it, it kind of comes back to that systematic thing again, um, where it's from all sides, it seems like women um, and children are experiencing an, an increased burden during conflict. Correct. You mentioned forced migration. And, you know, we know that during conflict, there's lots of moving around. Um, people fleeing a lot. Uh, you mentioned Ukraine specifically, lots of people fleeing Ukraine, specifically mothers and children women and children. Um, and we know that breastfeeding is commonly disrupted for people that are actively on the move that who are fleeing from conflict. As an organization that often provides for people that are fleeing setting conflict through emergency response programs, what can we do to ensure that breastfeeding, which we know is so important for maintaining optimal nutrition, what can we do as an organization that responds to these, these things to protect breastfeeding during these responses, during these emergency responses? How can we protect breastfeeding specifically? So as a rule of thumb, I recommend that we prepare. Preparedness is the most critical element uh, that I see whenever there is conflict or when there is any other form of crisis. There is an opportunity before the conflict for preparedness. So preparedness in just anticipating that something will go wrong one day and we just need to be prepared. Prepare material that can be used to educate and create awareness in communities. Prepare staff so that they have the basic knowledge on breastfeeding and how they can support mothers and other caregivers that might be responsible for children who need breast milk. And preparedness in terms of any other supplies that might be required before the conflict strikes. So being prepared before any conflict or any crisis is anticipated. So for me, preparedness is the most important form of a response that can be put in place before any conflict or any crisis hits. And when it comes to breastfeeding in particular, we find that when there is conflict, the most common response during con conflict is donation of breast milk substitutes. And we know that these are have high potential of being detrimental to children's health because during conflict, then water, clean water supplies are compromised and there is high risk of 
contamination during preparation of breast milk substitutes. And we know that there's also a likelihood that mothers who don't need this donated formula get access to that formula. And they may not breastfeed their children when they need to. And this is very this is an issue of concern. So we try to make sure that only mothers who need breast milk substitutes have access to breast milk substitutes. And we make sure that they are in a separate area when whether they're in transit, maybe a tent that is designated for them to just pass by to breastfeed their children and move along the chain to go to their next destination. We do this because once a lot of mothers are using donated formula, it has been recorded in most conflict situations that children will definitely record increases in cases of diarrhea. And this can even be so detrimental to lead to severe acute malnutrition if it becomes serious. Um, the other form of a response that we can we can do is just making sure that we have trained volunteers, uh, trained staff, and we talk to coordinators and brief them on what are the guidelines on how they should respond in such situations to promote, support, and protect uh, breastfeeding so that children who need breast milk from their mothers continue to have it. There are also cultural nuances that come into play. I'll give an example of the crisis in Syria. It resulted in a lot of mothers and children making their way into Europe because they were mostly traveling on trains with their male counterparts. They could not breastfeed because their culture does not allow them to expose any part of their bodies in front of their male colleagues. So it means that this, this became very complex. The children who needed breast milk could not be breastfed because of that situation. Adra successfully pitched tents in different train stations so that mothers who needed to breastfeed could breastfeed in those tents and go back onto the train and could proceed with their journey. So these are some of the interventions that uh, ADRA has put in place, uh, making sure that there is coordination of policy and guidelines by those who are leading the response, um, reinforcement of optimal breastfeeding practices through different media, uh, whether it's social media or print media, or it's um, news agencies, just making sure that the message is getting as to as many people as possible. Sometimes there is misalignment of policy by governments that are hosting transit populations. So as an agency, we try to have meetings with the governments that host or are in the pathway of populations in transit to ensure that their policies are aligning with the international standards which is the protection, support, and promotion of breastfeeding as an optimal practice. We also try to ensure that um, infants are not unduly separated from their caregivers, because once that happens, it means an infant who is still breastfeeding might then need breast milk substitutes while the mother is still alive. And uh, this is not an, an ideal situation, and we try to avoid those situations from happening. I think these are some of the interventions that we as an agency put in place in response 
to ensure that we are maintaining optimal nutrition uh, and supporting breastfeeding for infants who are still breastfeeding. So sudden onset conflicts aren't the only type of conflict that impacts nutrition. Can you tell us how protracted conflict paints a particularly complex picture for nutrition outcomes, given the complexities that protracted conflicts bring to communities? How can collaboration between nutrition and other sectors be strengthened to provide more comprehensive responses for people affected by these um, protracted conflicts? So during conflict, overall resilience of communities is diminished. And this crushes the people's will and their confidence and hope in the future and how the future will look like. And this has direct impact on nutrition and all other sectors. So we encourage that um, coordinators of conflict responses work together with other sectors, nutrition, shelter, uh, water and sanitation and hygiene, health, uh, social protection, child protection, etc. So you, you realize that I've already mentioned responses to nutrition include provision of clean water, provision of shelter. And this is how we ensure that there is an integrated response during conflict that improves the nutrition outcomes that we as people who work in the nutrition sector will be looking out for. So there can be greater collaboration between nutrition and other sectors like WASH and shelter and protection to ensure that mothers feel safe and confident to provide the nutrition support that they need for their children, including uh, breast milk uh, and foods that are suitable for children, uh, for those children who are beyond the breastfeeding age and are now consuming other family foods. The damage from protected conflict is very difficult to rise from. And it takes concerted efforts because, like I mentioned before, infrastructure is damaged, livelihoods are damaged. There is no agricultural activity in most areas to provide the food that people need to consume. And there's a rise in food prices. And so it takes a concerted effort across different sectors. For example, ADRA typically responds with provision of cash vouchers, uh, provision of food, provision of agriculture inputs, provision of uh, basic wash services. And these become the foundation on which mothers who, re who require assistance for improving their nutrition support for their families can rely on. So again, I... I see that the infighting for resources by household members is conflict within conflicts. So this is like household conflicts within the broader spectrum of the conflict that is happening outside the household. There have been cases of some household members struggling for resources because they are now there's now an economic crisis in the country because of the conflict. And so the equitable distribution of household income, for example, becomes compromised. So social cohesion is destroyed because people are not likely to trust one another when 
those situations arise. So we, we encourage that those sectors that deal with issues of governance, you know, conflict resolution, also help to build that confidence back in the communities, within households, among household members, to ensure that there is a safe environment where the mother and child can thrive to provide for their nutrition and food needs. I think these are some of the ways that I think can be put in place to ensure sectoral coordination across different sectors. We are slowly coming to the end of our uh, talk with you, Natai. And we do realize that a lot of what we've discussed today can be depressing for many people to hear. Uh, we've discussed Ukraine and Syria, protracted conflicts, um, what you termed conflicts within conflicts. We've talked about you know, women on trains with their children. And what we've tried to do since we started these conflict series is to um, leave things on a more optimistic note. So before we wrap up today's interview, we wanted to leave things on that positive note. Could you share with us a positive experience you've witnessed when it comes to nutrition during conflict that can be encouraging both to beneficiaries as well as to practitioners? Uh, so I'll share an example of the Europe crisis that I mentioned before. We as ADRA International partnered with ADRA Slovenia, which is one of the countries that was responding to the Syria crisis with a lot of populations uh, in transit. They were attending to large populations every day. At one time, they were attending to more than 2,000 women, children, and families at a given time. But they managed to put together a very successful response. They struggled in the beginning because a lot of the policy uh, guidelines were not clear on what is the situation when people are in transit, because this was a fairly new situation uh, for a lot of organizations, including leading organizations such as uh, UNICEF. So they managed to pitch uh, different uh, shelters along the, the train stations where families would pause, grab some food, have some water, uh, take a shower if they needed to, and also tents for breast milk, for breastfeeding, and where parents or caregivers needed breast milk substitutes, they also had a section where they they could provide those in a very safe environment that uh, avoided spillover to those who did not need the formula. So they trained a lot of staff and a lot of volunteers that were there to provide the needed support to these populations. Some of them would actually go on the train to provide awareness of these services and they would drop off at the next station and go back to their original uh, a station. So they did put in a, a very solid response. And I think it is one of those very successful uh, case studies. Despite the hardship, they did put in a response that was uh, successful with strong coordination with the government and other non-governmental organizations. Um, and it was also a cross-sectoral response. They integrated with WASH, protection, food assistance, and other sectors to make sure that the response was successful. I'll end up by saying the opportunity for preparing for any crisis or conflict is in the time when there is no crisis or conflict. 
preparedness. Once people are aware of what they should do when there is a crisis, when the crisis hits, how it impacts them might be a little different from people who have been unprepared. And so I, I encourage fellow practitioners to ensure that we continuously train people on how they can prepare for a crisis. We train them on how they can make sure that they have some food stored all the time, even when there is no crisis, because very few people, even in um, developed countries, prepare for crisis. So it's it's something that we have to change the mind, our mindsets, and just prepare for crisis because we do not know most of the time when it shall hit. So ensuring that people have a preparedness response, they have supplies in place, they have the knowledge that they need before a crisis hits. They know what to do when the crisis eventually hits. That for me, is the opportunity that lies before the crisis actually hits. Thank you. Thank you, Natsai. That's what you've shared has been really encouraging, you know, to hear that it is possible to implement an effective and successful response despite the dire situation. We have examples of our very own ADRA doing this. And so that's really encouraging to hear. And I think what you've ended on with the importance of preparation when there's no crisis, no conflict. That's what a great opportunity for us and a great word of encouragement for us as practitioners in this space to to really hold on to um, and to focus on going forward. Um, so great note to end on. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we really appreciate your time and the the words you've shared with us. Um, and we just we just thank you, Natsai. Thank you, Emily and Tino, for having me on the podcast today. I really appreciate you having me here today. Now, if you listening would like to learn more about nutrition and conflict zones, or if you would like to learn more about other topics regarding health, nutrition, and WASH, Feel free to contact the Health Technical Learning Lab at healthtll at adder.org. That's healthtll at adder.org. To listen to other episodes of the HTLL podcast, please find us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. We also now have a Spanish channel for HTLL episodes in Spanish. So to check this out, search the HTLL podcast dash Espanol. Thanks for listening and join us next time for another episode on the HTLL. Bye.